There were three ordinary women on what seemed like a simple mission to find a film they liked. One where women got something to do and not just look pretty or be murdered. Which, to be totally honest, has complicated matters a bit. Welcome to Flicking. Yes, it sounds a bit rude. That's the joke. Hello and welcome to this month's Flicking, our regular deep dive into our favourite films. I am joined by, as ever, Hannah Slurpy Dunleavy. Hello, nice cup of tea. And Yasra Osman. Hello, not so Slurpy, but here, present. <laughs> I don't know if you're actually here if you're not drinking tea. We need Slurpy noises. <laughs> I'm not a tea drinker, I'm so sorry. Get <laughs> out. A, I'm so sorry, I knew you wouldn't like that. Well, thanks very much for listening. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so, Yosra, can you explain to me why we are all three of us wearing hairdos that are at least a metre high? Well, that's because today it is my pick and I have gone for Sofia Coppola's 2006 historical drama Marie Antoinette about the life of the Austrian teenager played by Kirsten Dunst who becomes Dauphine and then Queen of France. The film, though not entirely historically accurate, actually takes a lot of reference from Antonia Fraser's excellent biography, Marie Antoinette, The Journey. If you're interested in this period of history and haven't read it yet, I would really suggest that you do. It is wonderful. Coppola herself describes it as full of life and unlike other dry historical dramas. Speaking of full of life, the film is presented as a feast for the eyes. Much has been said of its high fashion, dreamy, pastel-coloured splendour in the form of costume, cake, wigs and the grandiose building that is Versailles. More so, this depiction of the 18th century French court is curiously placed alongside a soundtrack of punk and new wave classics from artists such as New Order, Gang of Four and The Cure. Polarising when it was first released, and then some people will say it's still polarising now, this film has become something of a cultural cult classic, a film of scope and art, which we haven't really seen in historical drama since, more so with the intelligent, sincere performance of Dunst at its centre. Coppola is pretty faithful to Fraser's sympathetic portrait of a young girl who goes through the first stages of adolescence and adulthood with a whole weight of expectation on her shoulders. Amongst all the glamour, wealth and magnificence, for me, there's something really, really human to be admired at the centre of this work. So I have quite a few questions and talking points jotted down. And my first question to you, Mickey and Hannah, would be, did you know much about the history of Marie Antoinette? And if you didn't, did you find something interesting or new to learn in this film? Yes, I did. I'm obsessed by the uh, French Revolution. So, yes, I knew a lot about Marie Antoinette. And yes, you are absolutely correct. It is historically like a, a pile of poe, to be honest. But but I think Sophia Coppola makes films about lonely women. And as a film about a lonely woman, I think it's excellent. As a look at Marie Antoinette and that period of her life where she doesn't really understand what's going on. We don't even really understand what's going on, why it wasn't happening in the bedroom. There's lots of different theories. And a portrait of a very confusing time, I thought, yes, there was a lot to learn and take in about her personally. But did I learn anything about France? No. Does that help? Yeah, that's helpful. And and Sophia Coppola, she said, and we can come on to this later, but she said she was less interested in the sort of politics 
of 18th century France and she was less interested in all that all that kind of stuff and she was more interested in telling the story of Marie Antoinette at the centre and all of the burden mm. that she that she bared as, as a woman and as yeah. a queen. I'm all about the class war, obviously. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah, yeah, I'm about sure. everything, so yeah. It's really clear, isn't it, that she decided that if you're going to make a film that involves the French Revolution, you either have to be true to what happened in the French Revolution or what she does is kind of just remove that from the picture altogether. Mm. It's just on the very outskirts. I too know a fair bit about the French Revolution. I've got to say, it doesn't necessarily come from a childhood love of history, but more a childhood love of Les Miserables. Uh, And please, everyone, forgive my French pronunciation. When it's up against Yosra's beautiful accent, I feel quite Mm. embarrassed. But then also Hilary Mantel's A Place of Greater Safety, which I have read a couple of times and is all about the revolutionaries. So I knew about Marie Antoinette, but not loads about her life because the figureheads in the books that are about the revolution and about the class war are mainly just figureheads and they're there for their decadent lifestyles and what was being rebelled against when the French people were suffering such outrageous poverty. So after watching it, I went and learned a little bit more about Marie Antoinette as well and what happened to her kids and all of that stuff, which I I didn't know. It's interesting because, as, as I've mentioned, this is a very visually stylistic film. And I remember when the film first came out, that's what a lot of the criticism was about. It was about how beautiful it was to look at, but actually, is there much substance there? Now, obviously, I've already introduced it and I think there is, but to the two of you as a story is this engaging enough without just being something to look at yeah well I mean Mickey's right about it you know the French Revolution being almost entirely absent from it and it's odd that it was kind of criticized for being sort of over the top in sort of and lavish when in fact it's not a pile of beans of what was probably actually going on (laughs) there and I would imagine that perhaps she was restricted by not having a huge budget so I would imagine that that slightly restricted it but no I think there's I think there's substance there I think I mean like like I said all her films are about lonely women so if there's no substance in this then there's no substance in anything she's ever done because that's what she really does well I think or lonely young women in particular I think there's definitely substance there. There's, a, there's stories to be told that I don't think necessarily get told. And while there's a lot of guesswork, and I know you said she, she's used that book as a frame of reference, I think what comes across is her trying to get a, this vibe that figureheads are also human. And it can be really easy to forget that, particularly historical figureheads. And we see a lot of the the humanity or lack of humanity in stuff like Prince Andrew. It's like, yeah, human in a really awful way. That gets into the newspapers but actually she she was a kid like she was this kid who was thrown into a whole new world that was incredibly restrictive that was incredibly frivolous and while that might seem fun I think what Coppola really gets across is how quickly she gets bored of it and that's why she gets more and more extravagant and the fact was the monarchy and these institutions wanted their rich people to be mega rich to show off to other countries that actually we're doing all right jack don't you worry about us we you know we're a force to be reckoned with and whether you wanted to be in that or not once you were part of that family that was almost your duty was to be extravagant and decadent and wealthy and be seen spending all this money yeah and i think it's quite interesting the journey that the film takes because 
I mean, I always feel so sad at the you know when in the first few scenes where Marie Antoinette is presented to the king and the dauphin, and she's in that tent and they're dressing her and she has to say goodbye to the people that have accompanied her and they even take her mops, the little dog away, mm. and just mm. she's just standing there and she is a fourteen year old girl at that point and you feel really sorry for her and you go through this this narrative where because of all the weight of expectations because of the pomp and ceremony that is Versailles I mean there's a whole scene where she just stands there and she goes this is ridiculous she says it herself (laughs) but what that must have been like for her I know she came from from royalty anyway but it just seems that Versailles was something so extraordinary in comparison that Mm. you can see how it affected her I wanted to bring up a point because I've said that I think this film is really human and that Marie Antoinette I've always seen her as a very sympathetic figure but other people might say, well, she was still in this complete wealth and she was a bit frivolous. She was a bit um, capricious. She didn't really, she wasn't oblivious to what was going on around her. How do we think that she is portrayed as that character? And is it sympathetic enough? Should it be sympathetic? Should we still be seeing all that kind of frivolity and the fact that she, actually she had no, you know, she had no idea what was really going on in the outside world, to be honest? Yeah, I think what you were saying about you know the systems and how ridiculous they are and all of that and in many ways it sort of this film sort of shows that the dichotomy of she is powerful but she has no control she is sort of held up as a a figurehead and this this person to be I suppose you know worshipped by France or certainly you know yeah probably worshipped in those days but at the same point like like most of them have seen they're naked because that just seems to be you know she doesn't even have privacy over her body in parts so I think the contrast between the two is is really well done. And I suppose, yes, would, would make me more inclined to think about her day-to-day existence. Yes, it's difficult, isn't it? But, I mean, she's a woman. How much power does she have in that situation, really, given that her mum is constantly reminding her that her position there is basically to provide an heir, something that she doesn't do for a really, really long time? Yeah, so kind of what Hannah was just saying there about she doesn't really have any agency. The only time she gets to make decisions are frivolous stuff like, well, I'm going to go to this party or I'm going to order more cake or I'm going to buy more shoes. So if you don't have any agency other than that, then that's what you'll use it for. But she did, having done a bit of reading, she did do good in the world as well in France. And I guess there's a sort of take on this that we're all just accidents of birth where we end up. And clearly it's easier in lots of ways to end up being born into a wealthy family. But it wasn't necessarily easy. Does that make sense? Did I make any sense? No, I mean, you did. We talk about the podcast just this week about, you know, the stuff that's being said about Carrie Johnson. I mean, the contemporaneous views of her, while they will tell you, what people thought was happening won't actually really probably tell you that much about who she was either in that sense I mean not that I'm defending Carrie Johnson by any stretch of the imagination but you know women do get judged on a different level than men get judged and history has been really 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 unkind to her I think it's easier to vilify the women it's much easier to vilify women and Marie Antoinette faced that back then just as you can see examples of that with Carrie Johnson now yeah. Totally. The, the fact that she had very little actual power to change what was happening in France. And yet she is the one that is blamed that that, you know, the line that she never said that is in the film. She goes, I would never say that. 
let them eat cake is what is almost like her spending and that line is what led to the French Revolution, guys. And it's like, no, 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 that's not what happened. France was already in trouble. France then gave a lot of money to America that it didn't have. She didn't necessarily help, but the fact that it's so much easier then and now to push all of the blame onto a woman is really interesting slash fucking annoying. Yeah. See, there are some other really interesting women in that court and I don't feel like we get that much of them. What were they called? They were called Lafie? Lafie, were they? The sisters? The ones... The aunts. I mean, there were loads of them, though. There were loads more of that in the... the, None of his sisters married, basically, because there wasn't anyone really available to marry. So they were all bored out of their tiny minds in that house But it's interesting that they're portrayed as these kind of snide, cutting... Mm. I mean, it is in the in the book in Fraser's book. They are mentioned as you know they did like to comment a lot, but they themselves have this kind of I wouldn't say villainous, but just not the most complimentary depiction in the yeah. film. And I was also the other one who I was thinking of was um, Madame Dubarry, who yeah. is the king's mistress, and how she is sort of portrayed as just this annoying presence that nobody really really likes. And again, you know is it very sympathetic in fact one of the few female sympathetic performances you get is Marie Antoinette the other women not so much I would say but royal courts that's what they were like they were hotbeds of gossip and bed hopping and constantly looking over your shoulder because if you got something wrong you know you might get sent away or you'd be killed or your position's in danger they were kind of fraught places where everyone was always scrabbling to get any kind of little bit of status that they could Mm. I think that was important particularly in the first half of the film where it is purely about Marie Antoinette's ability to have a child like that's all she's there for and that's what she's mainly criticised about is the fact that she is not pregnant she's not having children even though there's a lot more behind it and as you say Mickey there were lots of theories about that it, it I do think it does a good representation of what that must have felt like for her all that expectation she had and the fact that she just seemed to be letting everybody down because she didn't have a baby in her belly and it hasn't changed has it there's no there's no sort of hint from anyone else that maybe it's not her fault right she's literally mm. cannot get her husband to fuck her so what is she gonna do the, the virgin birth isn't gonna happen here and yet all the blame is on her shoulders and i think there's still like vestiges of that today whereas it's always look at the woman if you can't get pregnant you look at the woman first it's and, the woman's yeah. fault yeah, yeah. At least now, though, you actually do know what what he's supposed to be doing. I think then, I mean, it, what information does she have to even, you know, possibly help or move things along? And they were kids. They were both just kids. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I think one of the funniest scenes is when they, uh, were, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but it did make me laugh when they send him to the doctor and he's like 90. And uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I thought that was really well done. Let's talk about some of the performances because obviously you've got the central performance from Kirsten Dunst and I. I bloody love Kirsten Dunst and I am so happy she got nominated yesterday for um, Power of the Dog at the Oscars because I think she's pretty much brilliant in everything she does. But also we've we've got other people, you know, we've got Rose Byrne, Jason Schwartz, but a whole array of different performances. Did any stand out to you or not stand out to you as the case may be? Rose Byrne is basically doing Queenie from Blackadder too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, as a rule, love Jason Schwartzman. I felt like he was in a straitjacket in this. It did nothing for me. I felt it was a really blank-faced performance. I was like, when's he going to let go? 
and he doesn't at all. It's really buttoned up. Uh, I mean, Ripped Horn's a lot of fun, oh, God, obviously. He's so <laughs> um, because he, and also because he's Ripped Horn. I couldn't really understand why Marianne Faithful was there other than to cast Marianne Faithful. I mean, Kogan's fun, obviously, and he has like the most extraordinary mullet. He looks like our friend Sam's dog, Evie. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> Who also like looks like she runs, she runs the local branch of the WI. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a sportsman, I would just, I, I would say it, he was almost not there, I thought. But I think See, that's I, why I thought it's a that good was how she was supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. And maybe it's a waste of his talent because his characters are usually like really over the top and full on and mm. full of themselves. And actually, Louis isn't. Who's this asshole? (laughs) But it's so different to have a foil for a woman so the woman gets all the attention instead of, like, the king getting all the attention Mm. and stealing the show. Oh, it's a rare complaint that I've had, possibly unique in cinema, that it's got thinly sketched male characters. (laughs) (laughs) I agree that Kirsten Dunst is incredible because she's in almost every scene. And I also like her in lots and lots of other films, you know, notably Drop Dead Gorgeous, she's brilliant in. I do also think of her always as a vampire because she's got little vampire fangs. So always a little bit disappointed when she's eating cake and not sucking necks. Maybe it could be a sequel to Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. We could have Marie Antoinette Vampire Hunter with Kirsten Dunst going all vampiric. Shall we suggest that? Let's do it. I think James Lance's character, the hairdresser, as well. Mm -hmm. I was waiting for that to be a bit more elaborate, a bit bigger, a bit. And that was really small and contained and not really much to it as well. I thought, oh, he's going to be the thing that sort of brings on flamboyant, you know, France, but he doesn't really. Yeah, ripped on aside, you're right. The men are really understated. It's the women who are the the stars of the show and the flamboyant mm. peacocks. You know, Tom Hardy gets what two lines? Hardly yeah. anything. Yeah, I'm not necessarily mad that it's a a, 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 a reversal of the usual. No, no, no. I was saying it's an almost unique mm. like complaint. It's worth it's worth having just for that. Maybe that's why I like it so much because. Yeah the male characters are actually quite insignificant and it is quite focused on, on the female characters but particularly Marie Antoinette who mm. the her portrayal isn't so much the tragic female royal portrayal that we might have seen in, in other films and, and from other periods although there is quite a lot tragic there it, it's there's something a bit bolder about I think what Marie Antoinette does speaking of bold everyone likes to talk about the soundtrack which is as i said full of new wave and punk and how odd it is to see a period costume drama with a 1980s inspired soundtrack although since marie antoinette's come out i've i've noticed other films have started Mm. to to do that Are, are you both a fan of that do you think the music works I will say I didn't find it a distraction. I liked it. You know, Adamant came on and I went, oh, I like Adamant. And that was fine, rather than thinking it clashed. So when we chatted about Romeo and Juliet and I was like, you know, it is like an extended MTV video. It didn't go quite as far as that. I didn't love it or hate it. I was like, okay, this is a song. It it works. It's fine. I don't mind our historical musical choices. I did think the stroke song that it plays was, I just kept thinking there are loads of better stroke songs that would even have seemed more appropriate to this. It was an odd choice. I thought the strokes leapt out as something that didn't quite work for me. But yeah, that's not because I'm any kind of purist. I don't mind a historical stuff at all. 
I think Coppola chose, she said she chose a lot of that soundtrack and speaking of Adam and the Ants because her first kind of look at 18th century France and sort of revolutionary themes was from an Adam and the Ants video and that sort of inspired her to pick the soundtrack that she picked although there may be a couple of not so great choices in that mix. Another thing that I wanted to bring up is the ending. So we all know what happens to Marie Antoinette and the French royal family and it's not great. Sophia Coppola chooses to end this film at a specific moment as they are going away from Versailles and obviously she has no idea what's going to happen next. We do. There's been a bit of conversation around why she might have chosen not to show the more brutal ending that happens to that family and whether it was a good point to stop the film. I personally think yes, because we spend most of the time concentrating on Marie Antoinette as a human figure and she's not really interested in the wider revolution and all the circumstances that go around that. But do you think there was more to say, perhaps, in this film? I suppose the difficulty is the French Revolution didn't really have an end, did it? No. It just, I mean, it goes on forever and then you go into the terror and at what point do you say, OK, we're done with this story? So I suppose the point would be their deaths or, you know, heading and leaving... I don't know. I feel like she's trying to make a point in which that is the point in, in which she, albeit ahistorical, so, but let's say for what's going on in there, that that is the point where I suppose she stops having any control at all and then she becomes Marie Antoinette, like the historical figure at that point. I think that might be what she's trying to say with that ending. Now, it doesn't really bother me then because, like I say, the rest of the French Revolution hasn't really existed in it up until that point and yeah this is about Marie Antoinette like so it doesn't need it isn't even really about her husband so I suppose to end her story there when she leaves when it starts when she arrives um yeah it works for me I guess that life at Versailles is over yeah it's over right so that's where it starts the film starts with her going to Versailles and then that life Mm. is over and it stops and also if you'd gone to the beheading then you're going to have to bring in a whole load of new characters and explain who they are because you've not covered the french revolution from that side at all yeah Yeah, i heard there was this dude called robespierre robespierre Um, (laughs) who's that (laughs) do you think though that because the last few years before she is driven away from Versailles they cover very very quickly skips along doesn't it they they just go from her having no children to her having um, three then losing one and then becoming really unpopular and this the key scene where you can see how unpopular she becomes is where she's at the opera isn't it and she stands up to clap and the first time we see that early in the film everyone is clapping along when looking at her and really you know admiring her and then the second Mm. time everyone's just glaring at her and no one claps with her is that sequence a bit too rushed or do we just not care because that's not really what the focus of the whole film is? Yeah, it lost me a bit, if I'm honest. Mm. I felt like it went a bit... Not necessarily that it went too fast, but the film lost impetus by doing that for me. Mm. So that's kind of almost when I lost interest and I guess that's when actually the politics would become much, much more important. Yeah, And that's yeah. so skimmed over that I feel a bit like, okay, well we're skipping through a lot of stuff that is actually genuinely very interesting 
Mm. Yeah. And there, there's an odd choice to include the scene in which um, he's saying, oh, we've got to, like, we got to support the Americans. And, you know, they talk about the American Revolution and the British. And I do... I do wonder what the point of including that was because it's literally one of the few bits that they actually include that sort of got some history in it. I don't even know if that's just for American audiences to be able to say, oh, there we are in the story. Isn't it to be sympathetic to Marie Antoinette and to say it wasn't just her spending money, given that she's our hero, in inverted commas? Yeah. I mean, the question is, who's it for? Because I very much doubt it's for someone who knows a huge amount about the french revolution or maybe not it's for them but you know maybe it it felt felt like it needed to explain that a little bit when i first watched it way back in 2007 whenever it was i had i didn't know anything about the french revolution because we didn't study french history at school and i had nothing Mm. and actually this film was the thing that meant made me go and get antonia fraser's biography and then do a lot more um wider reading on the french revolution so although it's maybe not for people that have an interest in this history it did actually make me more interested however i do have a real real love of tragic royal figures you know (laughs) Anne Boleyn all sorts i'm a really big fan of all that so it it was maybe catered it's interesting though yosra because the other thing that you really love is disney and yeah. she's almost a Disney princess, right? I know. Oh, gosh, this is very telling about me, isn't it? <laughs> like, Hannah and I have come at the French Revolution from the fucking class warfare. <laughs> and you're like, I really like the pretty stuff. <laughs> I'm all about the class warfare side, too. In fact, my wider reading, I did get there eventually. But yes, it was the kind of forlorn Disney princess thing that, that interested me first. OK, so I, I think I think. That's quite an interesting discussion. I actually haven't worked out if the two of you even liked it or not. <laughs> what would you say? I enjoyed it. I think it looks great. I really like the look of it. I love the colours. I thought Kirsten Dunst was excellent. I enjoyed Steve Coogan's haircut or wig. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed that everyone had the same colour hair as me and yet they were youthful. <laughs> I had, a, I had an, a nice time up until the bit where it sort of fast forwards things. Yeah, so no, I, I'm glad I've seen it. I don't know that I'd have sought it out on my own, so I'm very glad that I've watched it. Exactly that, because I was trying to work out when I was looking for it, um, even though Mickey, when I found it, and I said, yes, I found it, Mickey pointed out, you'd already told us it was on Netflix. I was thinking, why didn't I watch this? Because it is, you know, a historical drama, and, and I, I loved The Virgin Suicides, and I think Lost in Translation has a lot to commend it. Um, and I couldn't work out why I hadn't watched it. And then when I watched it, I couldn't really work out why I didn't like it. Not, I didn't hate it, but I didn't really mm. like it. Other than I could see the value in, like I say, actually the same stuff that she always does, which actually is point out that women have an inner life, mm-hmm. which sounds like it shouldn't be revolutionary, but kind of is when it comes to Hollywood. And I'm still a little bit, I don't know, I'm a bit confused how I feel about it, to be honest. I probably wouldn't watch it again, but I'm not angry at you for making me watch it by any stretch of the imagination. I'll take I'm glad that. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take you're not angry at me for yeah. choosing it as praise enough. Hannah, I think it's it's your pick again next time, isn't it? Uh, talking of being angry. It is my pick next time. And I thought, um, I thought we'd revisit a conversation that the three of us had in 2017 when I picked my favourite film of 2017 and the pair of you looked in blank-faced amazement at me and I thought we'd revisit it and it makes me a bit of an arsehole because it's the third in a trilogy and I don't know how it's going to work War for the Planet of the Apes. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> 
because I remember that conversation. <laughs> Do I have to watch the other eight movies first? There are two other first. And to be honest, I would suggest to you that you do because they're really good. But I think it would work as a standalone film if you just did a tiny bit of reading at the top to work out what had happened until then. I've seen the Charlton Heston apes one. That's not going to help. Okay. And also, that's not going to give you in any way a realistic idea of what it is you're about to watch. Oh, wait, I watched a Mark Wahlberg one. Is that one of them? No. Oh, God. There's a lot of monkeys around. Loads of apes. We've got homework to do, Mickey. Yeah, Mickey, when you find it, just send me the link and I'll check that you're watching the right one. (laughs) Hannah, I've watched 27 monkey videos and I don't know which is the right one. Do you know what? I've been waiting for you to choose this film because I do remember that conversation from 2017 and I was like, I just can't wait to see it, to just, just... just find out what it's all about I've always had agency and choice to go and choose to see it myself but I feel like I just needed that reason from you Hannah to, to finally watch it yeah, yeah. same as Grey Gardens eventually someone's going to strong arm you into it standard issue for all women